The following content is explicit. It's Wednesday, December 6th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Seven, eight, can't count the number of accusers have stepped forward against Al Franken. The classic MO groping during a photo. I don't know why the one time there's evidence of what you've done, you'd use that to grope. I don't understand a lot of this. But even outstripping the number of accusers right now as we speak are the number of senators, fellow Democratic senators, who are calling for Al Franken to step down. Uh, By the way, if you were playing along at home and wondering what I think, yeah, it's time for the guy to go. Jim Newell covers Congress for Slate, and he's going to join me for a segment we used to call One Question, One Question Only. Then it turned out I had a couple follow-up questions. So let's rebrand the segment, Couple Questions. Hey, Jim, I got a couple questions. How you doing? Hey. I'm good, thanks. And right now we're talking at about 3.30 in the afternoon. There are, what, 20-something Democratic senators calling for Franken's ouster? Yeah, right now it's 25. The, the last one I uh, that came in was Bernie Stan- Sanders, which is a pretty big one. So it's 25, which is a majority of the Democratic caucus. You also have the uh, DNC head, Tom Perez, has called on him to resign. So, I mean, I, this is going to happen, I think. It's just a matter of time. And it started with female senators, or at least today, uh, Claire McCaskill, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris came out with statements, what, within a minute of each other that seemed orchestrated? Yeah, the first two that I saw were uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and then Maisie Hirono from Hawaii. And then there are probably, you know, five more in the next 10 minutes. So it seemed like it was a pretty coordinated thing. I'm sure they had given a heads up to the leadership that they were going to do this. And yeah, and that now within a matter of hours, it's most Democratic senators. Uh, Al Franken has said he's going to give a statement tomorrow. And there have been a couple sort of knowing comments from senators being like, I talked to Al and I'm sure he'll make the right decision. Right. So this is a moral stance with political dimension. And by the way, I don't use political as a pejorative. I mean, politics at their highest can be quite moral. But what are the politics of this? Let's take it one by one. Democratic governor of Minnesota, Franken's replacement will be a Democrat. So that doesn't change anything with uh, counting noses in the Senate, right? Right. Yeah. The the Democrat governor will appoint someone until the 2018 elections when they'll have a special election. And um, though Minnesota got a little more red in the last presidential election, if you look at sort of the, the headwinds for Republicans heading into the next election cycle, I think they feel pretty confident that they can elect a full time Democrat next year. It's sort of cold and calculating, but maybe if if it was a different state, they wouldn't be uh, quite so in a rush to get him out the door. And what are the other political aspects? I mean, it strikes me as pretty not coincidental. This is occurring against the backdrop of the Roy Moore Senate race. Was this Democrats trying to say, essentially, uh, there's no way we could criticize, continue to criticize more if we have this if we have this infection within our own body? Yeah, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that this is very much about the Alabama election, because I think you've had, you know, even though they're not equivalent things at all, like, you know, Roy Moore with his child molestation allegations and um, the the groping allegations from Al Franken, I think you've seen Republicans seize on what Al Franken's done and been like, oh, well, if Al Franken gets to be in the Senate, why can't Roy Moore too, you know, and trying to just muddy the waters that way. So I think that getting him out now, especially with the most, you know, with these allegations keep coming forward more and more. It was just a couple. Maybe he could have survived it. But I think who knows when this will end. So I think they want him out. And I think they want him out uh, ahead of the Alabama special election. 
So I'll give you my opinion about the politics of this. Then uh, you comment on that if you care to. I think it's good politics. It might be cynical. It might be opportunistic at the worst. But you know what? If one party says we're going to do what we can to brand ourselves as the party against sexual harassment, A, this is how you do it. And B, I think that's a pretty good stance to take. I don't even mean morally. I mean to attract voters, especially younger voters. What do you think? No, I agree. I think it would make if, if, you know, more and more Franken accusers kept coming in and they didn't do anything about Franken, then it would look pretty hypocritical. So I think, you know, some people have been saying they should have been doing they should have done this a couple of weeks ago when the first accusations came in. But I think they're realizing now that, you know, especially someone like Kirsten Gillibrand, who's made, uh, you know, combating sexual harassment, congrat- combating sexual assault, a pretty big part of what she, you know, does public policy wise. I think it's, you know, important for her to stay consistent when it's a member of her own party and a friend. So, yeah, I I think it's something that they felt like they need to be consistent on. Yeah, again, my opinion, but then you go, I I actually think that the timing of it was fine. I think that had they pulled the trigger or if uh, Senator... Gillibrand had asked for it after allegation one, it would be in some sense uh, denying the guy a little bit of due process. And there's been no court adjudication. But after accusers four, five, six, and seven, all right, this this can't possibly be a uh, just one he said, she said, or one one person misinterpreting things. You know, it doesn't seem like swift justice at this point. It just seems like just justice. I think Congress right now is trying to develop its own policy for how to deal with these because you know i hate to tell you al franken is not gonna be the last person for whom there's gonna be allegations against so it's sort of being done it's sort of being made up on the fly now how these are going to be dealt with i mean we still have in the house of representatives blake farenhold who's another congress a republican congressman from texas he's had some credible allegations against him but there's not much pressure against him to resign just yet so it's sort of this is being you know written the, the the way these are dealt with in real time All right. Jim Newell covers Congress for Slate as a staff writer for that august publication. Thank you, Jim. All right. Thanks. And as you heard me say in the beginning of that interview, yeah, I do think it's time for Al Franken to go. A couple weeks ago, I said, let's hold off and let's uh, evaluate. Let's see if there are other accusers. There were. He's gone. That's fine. One thing I haven't said in uh, defending a guy like him, which you sometimes hear is that, you know, he is right on the issues. You know, he is a vote for legalized abortion. That's true. Sometimes you hear people say that a a person who engages, a man who engages in sexist behavior uses those stances as a shield. Sometimes they do. I also think it's possible that even a monster like Harvey Weinstein, okay, I don't want to credit him with anything, but it's possible that a guy like Al Franken really believes in women's reproductive rights or equal pay because he does, but then also has this other side where he's gropy or harassy. And then finally, there is the cynical use of feminism to excuse oneself, either to oneself or publicly. I'm talking about the kind of man who will say he advocates the lean-in movement, but really it's only to get a glimpse down your blouse. On the show today, I spiel about Donald Trump's Jerusalem speech, mitzvah or shanda? Or has Donald Trump invented a new category, shitzvah? But first, speaking of the Jews, I've got one with me, a rugged one. Bob Garfield is the host of On the Media. He is out with a one-man show called Ruggedly Jewish, and our talk goes far afield.
It is not true that Jews control the media, but it is true that Jews control on the media. The public radio program produced by WNYC is helmed by Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield. Bob is my guest. And the reason I bring this up is, A, it's a hilarious joke. But B, Bob's also coming out with a one-man show, possibly to a city near you. If you're near New York, Berkeley, Chicago, or for some reason, Park City, Utah. And it's, it's about Judaism, a certain brand of Judaism. Hello, Ju- hello, Bob. Hello, Jew. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> You're doing all the work for me. <laughs> hello, Bob. How are hello, you? Hello, half Jew. It's, uh, it's nice to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be coming. So should I come for just uh, the first act uh, and leave an intermission or sneak in an intermission? <laughs> How does it work? No, I understand. No, that's between you and your gods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what is the name of the show and why is the name of the show? All right. The show is called Ruggedly Jewish. And it is called that because it is plainly absurd. And it's a lot about my fraught relationship with my religion. And uh, it's, uh, it's a, a search for identity, but not only my religious identity, a whole mess of other identities along the way. So when I ever hear when I hear a search for I don't know for some reason plays use that in the uh, in the press releases a lot I kind of hate a search for I like a story of I like I know what I have going in and you've already done the stories you've done so many stories on seekers and weirdos and quirky people and somehow that's all wrapped up in Judaism were you a Boy Scout or did you ever go to sleepaway camp I was I had some. Uh, Dalliances with the Weeblos. Okay, so then you know uh, how to make a lanyard. Mm-hmm. You get some gimp, which is some sort of extruded vinyl, mm-hmm. and in these strands, you know, and you weave them together in various kinds of stitches that you can come up with a lanyard to hold a whistle or actually usually nothing. But in any event, that's what Ruggedly Jewish is meant to be. All these disparate strands about me and my struggles with my own Jewish identity, but also the the deplorables and and their hunt for identity which finally expresses itself in the most toxic ways and largely explains i i think the trump administration and in between all of these as you mentioned these american eccentrics and seekers who i spent years and years reporting on for all things considered who I believe were themselves ultimately in a search for an identity, a particularly American form of identity that is rooted in the impulse for self-improvement. Yeah, when that New York Times article on the uh, nice Nazi next door, there were parts in it that resonated uh, because he was a libertarian first and then he was in a punk band and you could tell this guy wound up with the worst possible answer, but it was this very human search for identity. And uh, having interviewed Kurt Anderson and read his book. It's like America is all about encouraging these eccentrics, except when they hit and when they land, we stop calling them eccentrics. We call them maybe Brigham Young or Joseph Smith or horribly, horribly off course. And we're seeing that with the neo-Nazis. We are. And I think we're inculcated from birth that our identity is rooted in some sort of self-improvement. And and if you used to earn 45 this is a line from the show if you used to earn 45 bucks an hour down at the auto parts plant and now you're making 12 bucks driving the airport shuttle wh- what does that make you yeah the the answer is a failure so you better figure out explain to yourself how how that doesn't make you a failure and and uh, thus do we find the underpinnings of of trumpism so when you when you interviewed and i remember the great interviews you did with all 
things considered where they sent you on the road and you found eccentrics. And I remember the resulting book, which is called Waking Up Screaming from the American Dream. I have a signed copy that I cherish. Tell me about one or two who show up in Ruggedly Jewish. I'll tell you about Rose Loki. She was a Detroit cable access TV host. But that's sort of besides the point of this story, because mainly she was the owner of Katrina, the talking cat. And Rose could not understand why nine lives and, and tender vittles weren't, you know, be, meow mix, beating a path to her door to make Katrina and her stars and to pay them untold wealth to get Katrina on TV pitching cat food. She just could not understand. And she, <laughs> she, she of course, uh, showed me how magnificently Katrina, the talking cat, could talk. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's quite a display. And how did she sound? Well, Mike, she sounded like this. Say, I'm amazing. 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 I'll leave it for you to decide how good Katrina's elocution was. I can say the the, the word is it just a question. It's just a question of pronunciation, huh? The definitely words. I'm just, it's on me not to, to to delve through the accent. I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, who are we to judge? That's I right. mean, after all, it's a cat that talks. Uh, I can tell you how this uh, how Rose went about this. She she held the cat. Yeah, and she put her hand in the, you know, sort of undercarriage, and she did some squeezing. <laughs> yeah. uh, she never made it into the, into the cat food marketing industry. And by the way, I am not meaning to suggest that the measure of success in life is fame and riches. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that that is the metric that we so often encounter and we're under a lot of pressure every american who you know doesn't become president of the united states like we're promised uh, you know all through life feels like they failed to measure up and sometimes as we're learning today in this very very fraught political moment that the the repercussions can be very serious this is, of course, separate from the fact of whether I'm a, a Jew or not. <laughs> well, where's the Judaism come in? That the, the pressure, the pressure as a Jew to, to be successful, is that part of it? Well, the through line of this piece is that uh, we're all trying to figure out who the hell we are, mm-hmm. right? And in my case, I was born Jewish, grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, got a Jewish education, know a whole mess of Hebrew prayers, and have spent most of my life, I am 62 years old, the oldest living American, and I've spent <laughs> the, the greatest part of my life running away from that, from the culture, as fast as I can. And... Our current political moment has made me give some thought about this. You know, I, I, I don't want to be stereotyped as a self-loathing Jew because it's not that. But I'm not a believer, so this raises the question of who and what am I? And it's kind of been in the back of my mind my whole life. Now, with Nazis marching in Charlottesville, I've been giving it a whole lot more thought. So you started uh, hosting, permanent hosting on the media. I was there. What, 2000, the year 2000? Yes. Yeah. And I remember, do you remember the Columbine test? 
I do not. The col- we were we were casting about for p- possibly a new name for the show. And so as we were talking about different kind of names, uh, some were funny or clever, but we said it had to pass the Columbine test. At that point, Columbine being the worst incident in fairly recent history, and we knew that we'd be coming on the air perhaps the Friday after Columbine, and it couldn't be, you know, Brooke and Bob's wacky media cavalcade. Here we're talking and intoning about Columbine. Remember when Columbine was simply unspeakable, unimaginable yeah. Yeah. tragedy, unlike yeah. anything that had preceded it. Yeah. And now it's, you know, just uh, it's one line in a very, very long Wikipedia entry. And, and in fact, I remember you doing a great interview with, I forgot who it was, but you kind of pounded the table, as you are wont to do, and say, are we going to get to the place where there's a school shooting and it doesn't even show up on page A1 or A2 and A or A3? You were apoplectic about... What would happen to us as a society if we became so inured to that? And it's absolutely come to pass. It has. You know, it's the war dead list. When the war starts, there's front page profiles in the New York Times. And, you know, six months into the war, war it's, there's a, a list in agate somewhere in the back. Yeah. One of the reasons I brought up the Columbine test was just to mark it in time. It was before 9-11, and at that time, the media landscape was totally different. And gatekeepers got swept away, and there was a democratization of voices. Much for the good. But you know what? Lately, in the last two years, I have been yearning for the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers weren't always great. They weren't always qualified. Some of them were born into it. They were overwhelmingly In fact, we made a living. Yeah. We made a living, Mike, finding fault with the decisions and the practices of the gatekeepers, right? Those were the good old days. Those were the good. I think you probably won your first first Peabody doing just that. But man, I... And I wonder if you do too. I yearn for some more gatekeeping. I would trade however much democratizing influence we've had, just in terms of the election and how important it is, I would trade all of the democratization of the internet for Ben Bradley and three networks (laughs) and the gatekeepers telling me what is true and what is false. Well, you know, I appreciate your, uh, the thought and there is a bit of a, kids get off of my lawn uh, mm-hmm. vibe to it because you know we can't go back to the good yeah, old except days. right now the kids have the kids have you know planted stakes in the lawn and are tearing <laughs> up the lawn and maybe putting a bomb inside the lawn <laughs> yeah i also you know don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. there have clearly been dystopian consequences of the digital revolution but there have also been many many utopian and democratizing aspects of it this same stuff that gave us the 2016 election also gave us easy pass easy pass <laughs> that's the one oh right that's i mean, I, mean, that's, I think that's, it's that's maybe the, the greatest <laughs> thing that technology has ever brought us this is how they get you we should have bullet trains if not teleportation machines <laughs> oh my god Bob Garfield is the host of On the Media and Ruggedly Jewish will be December 9th in Chicago, January 14th in New York, January 27th in Berkeley, and February 17th in Utah, Park City, Utah. Bob Garfield, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, Mike. And I'm sorry, I I misheard. Did you say December 9th, which is this coming Saturday in Chicago at Park West at 730? Mm -hmm. I I, I might have misheard. Yeah, yeah, maybe uh, not all the details. Uh, Tickets available at... Go to ruggedlyjewish.com or to the Park West uh, ticket buying online, whatever. 
Yeah, I think it's called a website. Thank you, thank you, thank you, media expert Bob Garfield. <laughs> uh, Mike, as you know from yeah. having worked with me for years, I am far too busy criticizing the media <laughs> to consume it. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Donald Trump today made an announcement that almost all of the international community condemned as provocative and simply not constructive. It was simultaneously an action that really did, as Donald Trump put it, recognize a reality. Today we finally acknowledge the obvious, that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. This is nothing more or less than a recognition of reality. It is also the right thing to do. It's something that has to be done. Recognizing a simple fact isn't always simple. There are ripples that could occur. Violence could result. Sorry, let's not use the passive voice. Palestinians or other sympathetic Muslims could attack Israelis or American outposts in protest. The U.S. armed forces have taken preventive measures in anticipation of this. Report says that the U.S. Marine Corps has dispatched elements of its fleet anti-terrorism security teams or fast companies to provide additional security at American embassies across the Middle East. However, it is true that sometimes a great accomplishment requires a great risk, a bold undertaking, and the United States shouldn't back down from such an opportunity. So is this an opportunity to move the peace process along? And also, to be really, really fair, even if the answer is no, it should be asked, will this retard the peace process? What are the benefits? What are the costs? Donald Trump does not look at it this way. Donald Trump said at the top of his speech that his charge is to simply do something different for every situation in the world that's been a problem. We cannot solve our problems by making the same failed assumptions and repeating the same failed strategies of the past. Old challenges demand new approaches. This is plainly wrong. Some challenges need new approaches. Some need little tweaks. Some need the same approach better executed. And it's possible that the status quo in some situations may be preferable to change. As far as that one goes, see a lot of the Arab Spring, the decline of Al-Qaeda, which gave way to ISIS, the FARC rebels in Colombia. I know, by the way, I do not understand how not staffing the State Department gets you to new approaches, though that is a new approach in and of itself. After Trump spoke, a few experts who are well-intentioned took to the media airwaves and pointed out that this might be a masterful, tactical, diplomatic stroke. Maybe this move, because it's popular in Israel, could be the honey for some later vinegar, you know, in the land of milk and vinegar. Or maybe it's a signal to the Palestinians that'll bring them to heel. At the very least, it is a campaign promise delivered. I look at all of this differently. I see it as in keeping with Trump's role as the chaos candidate and now the chaos president. All those assumptions about this recognition being part of Trump's long game assume Trump has a long game or has ever played one. I do not think Trump thinks about Jerusalem or Israel every day. I think he lets Stephen Miller and Jared Kushner drive the bus on that issue. He's got Joe Scarborough conspiracy theories to disseminate and LeVar Ball to scrap with. And on so many issues, Trump doesn't care if he creates chaos. He thinks, as far as I could tell, if he thinks at all, so maybe we should say he feels that tumult is good. 
So what are the possible ramifications of recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, or at least laying the groundwork to do so? If there are no violent uprisings, then Trump will say, good, the media and all these foreign entities, the Germans, the Saudis, the Jordanians, the English, they're all worry warts. I was right. But if there is violence, he will say, good. That just shows the Palestinians aren't good partners in peace. I was right. We should never have been giving them this concession in the first place. It's a little like the Bergdahl verdict. His opining pre-verdict may have influenced the judge to go easy on Bergdahl. But in either case, Trump says, good. Bergdahl gets a harsh sentence. He says, see my calls for justice work. I'm an effective guy. Bergdahl walks, as he did. He just gets a chance to fulminate about what he's been saying all along, the injustice of it all. Same with all the popping off that doomed so many iterations of his travel ban or casually dropping charges of being wiretapped. Every time his agenda is hurt, his indignant sense of victimhood is rewarded. And he can say, see, that's what I've been saying all along. This is a consequence of doing your job as president not to try to lead and not to try to improve situations, not even try to appeal to most people, but only to validate yourself and to nurse grievances among the faithful. The thing that frightens me most about Jerusalem isn't even anything about Israel. I, I actually think it's likely that not much will happen. Perhaps some people will be hurt, but geopolitically not much will change. But I look at the Jerusalem announcement and I think about Korea. Not caring about the consequences of a provocation that the whole world warns you against? What if that happens in Korea? Setting off violence and retreating to, see, I told you so, I told you they were bad guys? That's frightening. Thinking that if your actions provoke a violence, it's not an indication that you shouldn't have provoked it. It's an indication that the other side shouldn't be violent. And we know the other side shouldn't be violent. But when the other side is violent, and also as is the case with North Korea, violent and nuclear, that could lead to some real Old Testament stuff. And that's it for today's show. And in Pierre Bien-Aimé's feet in ancient time, walk upon England's mountain green, and was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen. And did the, Mary Wilson just producer, shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded there among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my song sung from on high. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai. Bring me my chariot of fire. The gist will not cease from mental fight, nor shall sword be kept from you till we have built Jerusalem. And thanks for listening. All right, so what's it sound like? Okay. No. It's like... <laughs> <laughs>